Hey theater people, Patrick here. Well, you guys, it's that super special time of year where Broadway Con is just around the corner. It's happening January 26th through 28th at the Javits Center in New York City. You guys, just glancing through the schedule, I'm particularly excited about the In the Heights reunion panel featuring, yeah, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Karen Olivo, Alex Lacamoire, and other members of the original cast and creative team. Of course, I'll be there moderating the LGBTQ Out on Broadway panel, where I'll chat with well-known, out loud and proud members of the Broadway community, and the Theater People live show, where I'll catch up with some of our favorite A-list guests. Oh, and you guys, there's going to be a Broadway podcaster's booth in the Marketplace, where you can come by and chat with me and Jillian Pensavalli of the Hamilcast, Alana Levine of the Little Known Facts podcast, the crew from Broadwasted, and more. There is so much to see, participate in, and experience at BroadwayCon 2018. You can find the complete schedule and information on hotels and tickets at broadwaycon.com. Okay, now to the show. Deep beneath the city with a thousand other strangers. Welcome to the Theater People Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Hines. You guys, we are so thrilled to welcome today's guest, Telly Leung, back to the show. We sat down with Telly a few weeks ago just as he was settling into the title role of Aladdin in Disney's Aladdin on Broadway. We also got the chance to talk about In Transit, the acapella musical he starred in on Broadway alongside Justin Guarini and Margot Seibert. And we got to have a follow-up conversation about Allegiance in which he originated the role of Sammy alongside Leah Salonga and George Takei. I'm obsessed with Telly, and I loved getting to catch up with him. Here's our conversation. Where I just sat, I wish I knew the time. Um, hi, Telly Leung. Hi, how are you, Patrick? You know, it has been a minute. We were just talking, 2014 was the last time we were on the podcast. Yeah, I've missed you. I know, I missed you too. Welcome back. You, well, I've, I've been keeping up with you. I know what's been happening. So let's talk Aladdin first. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's, I'm so excited to be doing this show. I'm about three months in now, and um, it's an absolute blast. How did it happen? Uh, you know, it happened kind of the old-fashioned way. I went to an audition. Just like like your agent made you an appointment. Like they, you know, they were auditioning for Aladdin's on for the national tour, mm-hmm. and um, and so uh, uh, you know, they said, "Well, we we know you're going to be busy within transit, but come to this audition anyway. It's so hard to get Tom Schumacher, um, the head of Disney Theatrical, and also Casey Nicola all in a room together. So they're auditioning Aladdin's for the tour. Just come in. We know you're going to be busy with another Broadway show, but just come in anyway, and we'll see you. And so I had an audition. And a couple of callbacks, and then and then they said, "Well, by the way, you know, we're actually going to lose an Aladdin on Broadway because Adam Jacobs, the original Aladdin, is going to be opening the tour. Would you like to take over for him?" And so it, it was um, a wonderful kind of serendipitous, wonderful way for me to come come over here. You know, so it's funny because it feels like Aladdin has been here forever, but it's only been a couple years, right? It's been like three years. I think it's been around for. Uh, Oh, three years, I think. Yeah. yeah, three years. And you're the second Aladdin, correct? There were there were some one uh, there was some time between uh, Adam Jacobs leaving and me coming in because I was still doing in transit. So the, the, there were two wonderful understudies that kind of kind of took over the role for a couple of weeks. Joshua De La Cruz and also Jacob Dickey. They were phenomenal. And so, um, but yeah, but like actually full time taking over the role. Like I'm I'm really only the second one. You know, That's so crazy. So we I I made another podcast for Disney and we were talking to Adam right before he left to go to the tour and we were talking to Courtney as well and Courtney was so excited to to know that you were coming and that she was going to get to work with you and we just wonder people want to know if Courtney's taking really good care of you oh uh, Courtney is the best actually th- this whole company has taken very good care 
care of me. You know, I'm the new kid on the block, for sure. And everybody, Courtney Reed, Major Attaway, who has who's brilliant as the genie who took over James and wrote Agahart. You know, he there. It's um, it's a wonderfully caring company. And of course, you have Jonathan Freeman, who you know has all of the Disney legacy. I mean, he not only was he the original Jafar on Broadway, but he's the original Jafar <laughs> from the film. And so I, I don't know. Everybody here has been so wonderful with me, showing me the ropes. You know, I at first they said, "Oh, we're going to give you three and a half weeks to learn the show." Now I'm somebody who used to do summer stock. I used to learn a show in ten days and do it. And I was like, "Gosh, three and a half weeks. What am I going to do with three and a half weeks?" Well, what I quickly realized was there is a lot of show yeah. in Aladdin. There is yeah. a lot of show. No. You, you're known as like a, a like an originator of roles. You're like a principal star. How is it for you to come into like how was it different for your brain and your job and like your work as an actor to come in and replace in a role like this? Well, it's um it's very exciting because I was always a fan of this show. As, you know, with with Aladdin, I, I had seen the original production in previews before they even opened, and I just thought it was such a great translation of the film, and it was it was kind of a beautiful. A beautiful way of kind of transferring what people loved about the movie, but also doing its own thing by making it this two and a half hour splashy traditional Broadway musical, you know. And um, so I, I was already a fan of it. So that that was already uh, there was already a part of me that kind of loved the piece already. But coming into it, it is also stressful because you know you have an entire company of people that have been doing this for three years, and they and this is you know this is easy for them. And there's always as an actor, you always feel like you're playing catch up. With those people, whereas when you originate a role, you know uh, it's you're creating that track, you're creating that role, and everybody is creating around you. And you know, though previews can be hard when you're throwing in numbers and taking out numbers and cutting lines and changing jokes and cutting characters and all of that. You know, it's that can be a difficult process. But at the same time, there is, uh, there's, you know, there's no kind of error in that because I'm the one creating it in the moment on the spot and so everybody's kind of learning the the show at the same time whereas here I was constantly playing catch up and can you tell people like a little bit about the process of being put into a show like this sure well like I said I thought to myself three and a half weeks gosh that's so much time but actually three and a half I used every single minute of that three and a half weeks the first week I was in a room um, with our resident director, uh, Casey Hushin, and also with our dance department and also stage managers. And they just walk me through the show number by number, you know, and the, uh, in, a, in a rehearsal room. And every night I was in the house sitting at the soundboard watching the show. I'm kind of, uh, kind of trying to make sense of what I learned during that day and watching it on its feet at night. And thank God I had wonderful, the wonderful Joshua De La Cruz and Jacob Dickey to watch and learn the show from, you know, because I really absorbed so much of the show from them. And also my memory of seeing Adam in it. Um, but, uh, but then the second week, they kind of start bringing in some of the other players in the company. So week two, after you've kind of learned your paces on your own with the stage managers and the dance team and the resident director, then they go, we're going to bring in Courtney for a couple of scenes. And then we kind of figure each other out and figure out our chemistry. And then we're going to bring in Jonathan Freeman and Dondre Rivera in for a couple of scenes. You get Jafar and Iago now. And so uh, uh, then we're going to bring in Babcock, Omar, and Kasim. And so you eventually start to, oh, go, all right, now I have human beings in, uh-huh. in, in a rehearsal room. The third week, we just spent two or three days just on the deck. Just, they're like, no acting. So, like, don't act. I just want you to walk from point A to point B safely. You know, I want you to, you know, jump out of trap doors safely. I want you to ride carpets. Safety first, you guys. Safety first. Like, I want you to ride carpets safely. I want you to jump over buildings safely because it's quite an athletic 
role. And there's, like I said, it's a lot of show. So they want to make sure that technically you're safe on everything. And then eventually you, you get to the point where they go, all right, let's have a, let's space, let's do a spacing rehearsal. Let's get you in with the entire company on a Thursday. And then they're like, great, that's good. You're safe. You're good. Let's do a big full on costume, sound, everything put in on Friday. And then I was on Friday night. See, this sounds like more than I feel like other people on our podcast have been like, yeah, you like rehearse it by yourself with the stage manager and then you get like, you're in costume, everyone else is in their clothes and then you're on. Well, that's true. I mean, it's for a put in, I was the only one in my clothes. I was the only one doing my quick changes, you know, so it was kind of a bizarre experience, but, but yeah, yeah but it's, um, it's, it, they, they took very good care of me teaching me the show I felt like they they were they were very hands-on and very available to me and this entire company was has been so open arms and welcome welcoming to me what was your first show like how was that um out of body I think your first show is always a little out of body and you just want to make sure that you you know survive the whole thing (laughs) and and that you said all the right lines and you sang all the right lyrics and you were in the right marks and you were in your light and all of that all of that stuff you know and then um I I don't know I don't think you quite feel I had to give myself a preview period because I'm so used to like you said originating roles I'm used to having some sort of preview period where I can feel like I have room to grow and things to change and a checklist of things to do for the next night and so um and and also that, you know, I had wonderful, you know, resident directors, you know, like Casey Hushin and also Casey Nicola as well was like, you need a preview period. We understand this. We know we know what this is like. You know, the, both of them have been, you know, Broadway dancers and Broadway gypsies themselves. So they know they know what this process is like replacing in a show. They're like, we're going to give you some time to settle in. And um, and uh, and they did. And they were, they've been very, very patient with me and, and, and wonderful in guiding me. One of the things I'm always fascinated about is talking to like principals and leading, you know, like especially like title character actor. The, the whole thing about being the leading man and sort of like having to lead the company and having to lead by how, how does that work when you are the leading man and but you're coming into a show that a bunch of people have been in for a really long time? Um, well, I I had very good training for being a leading man in allegiance, I think. Yeah. Um, and and not only did I have good training there, but I also got to do it with a leading lady that I love and adore, Leia Salonga. Like an angel just got her wings. I mean, she is like, she is the leading lady in, yeah. in the Asian yeah. <laughs> acting community. Yeah. She really is. And, you know, my first Broadway show was with her, yeah. you know, and um, it was Flower Drum Song, and she was a leading lady. Jose Lana was a leading man. I was his understudy. So I've had all of these wonderful leading men as and leading women as examples throughout my career that I kind of learned, how do you comport yourself? You know, how do you... And it's and it's the, st- it's the stuff like, you know, it's not just the stuff that's on stage as well, but it's kind of the, the energy and the spirit you bring into a building. That's something that no acting conservatory teaches you no training program teaches you that just comes from doing theater a lot and i think it also comes from watching phenomenal leading men and women and how they lead the spirit of a company you know i i i try to walk in the door as positive as possible and i try to also just go hey guys we're going to put on a great show tonight you know and i think that's something that um like i said it's not it's not ever taught It's, it's something that i think you you kind of learn by watching brilliant examples and, and being part of a company, being in the ensemble, you know, that's where I started, was in the ensemble of musicals, and watching how leading men and women take care of a company and how they lead it, not just by the work on stage, but their, but their spirit and their dedication off stage as well. I was watching an interview with you today where you were talking about learning about how Aladdin is comes from a Chinese street fable or something yeah, well, like that. I, I mean, I did my fair share of research. You know, of course, I remember the Disney film and all of that, but I also wanted to say, well, where's the actual source material? And of course, this story is thousands and thousands of years old. So, um, you know, in the original, original stories, it was a boy 
in a city in China somewhere, which I did. That was that was a factoid that I just didn't know. You know that when I looked it up on Wikipedia, I was like, oh my gosh, that's you know. And also the fact that you know everybody kind of assumed that it was one of Shahrazad's tales in A Thousand One Arabian Nights. I was doing an event with Tom Schumacher and Alan Menken actually out in L.A., and he was the one that said actually it was never part of the Arabian Nights when when the first translation of that happened in France. I think this translator Galland, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but G A L L A N D. He put it in as part of one of the stories. Because it was kind of this folktale that had been passed along. And I said, oh, that's so cool. You know, and I, you know, it's one of those fables and stories. Does it really matter where he's from? It, it, it kind of doesn't because it's, it's one of these stories that lives in every culture. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those fables with a message that's universal, I think. So, so, um, so it's, and it's just, it's just a great story that's been passed from generation to generation. And who knows where it's from? <laughs> I was thinking just I, I was thinking about James Monroe Eichelhart because you know I re- recently saw him in Hamilton I saw him in this and he's been on our podcast and tell me again the name of your genie oh, Major Attaway Major Attaway of course of course I, that is a role that requires so much energy and I think that Aladdin is a role that requires so much energy do you guys have to like how do you guys do that eight times a week we cheerlead each other a lot and we uh, we do help each other quite a bit you know um <laughs> i mean little st- little things you know it's like hey major there's this great you know chinese massage place go here when you're tired on your day off do you know yeah. what i mean and or like hey like you know we'll share you know, it's allergy season. We'll share like homeopathic secrets with one another and stuff like that, you know, to kind of just get each other through. And we'll check in on each other, be like, how, how are you feeling? How are you today? You know, um, because it is it is um, a, a team effort at Aladdin. You know, it's, it's you know, sir, yes, I'm the title character. I'm the leading man. But, you know, somebody like Major is carrying so much of the show yeah. as well. Somebody like Jonathan Freeman is carrying so much of the show as well as the villain. You know, the leading lady, Courtney Reed, is carrying so much of the show as well. And it, it is a it's a team effort. You know, we look to each other. We look each other in the eye. And after a five show weekend, you know, after you've done a show Friday two Saturday to Sunday, yeah. I count on my buddies on stage to get us through that last show on a Sunday night, you know, so it's, um, and, and we're, I feel like we're very, we're supporting each other in that way every night. Well, let's go back a little bit. Sure. Can we talk about In Transit? Yes, I would love to talk about In Transit. I got a good deal on this reservation. Let's take a step back and lower expectations. I'm psyched I'm gonna meet your family. Finally. Going back home. Complicated, but we're gonna have fun. Oh, as long as I'm sedated, four days flat, then back to NYC. It's just four days home. That's about all I can take. I once stayed a week, and what a big mistake! Only four days home. Stop playing up the drama. That's how I get in character to hang out with my mama. Okay, I have never seen an acapella show before. How? Is it different to do an acapella show than it is to do like your standard musical? Well, um, the biggest difference was the sound design. Um, Ken Travis, who happens to also be the sound designer for Aladdin, he did the sound design on In Transit as well. The the toughest part about Circle in the Square is hearing each other in the thrust. You know, you have to carefully place, you know, I experienced this when I did Godspell as well. You have to know where to place the speakers so that there's no feedback so that that sound doesn't go back into your microphone and all of that. Well, the only solution that we had was that we had to wear in-ear monitors like like they do in big rock concerts. You know, you'll see Taylor Swift or Beyonce playing giant stadiums and yeah. they have these things in their ears. Sometimes they'll take one out and they'll only keep in, yeah. keep one in so that they can hear what it is in the space. But we, we all of us at In Transit wore in-ear monitors. And to my knowledge, 
I think that might be the first time that an entire company has had to wear in-ear monitors to hear each other. Is that what that was for? So you could hear each other? So that we could hear each other because the, the you know, our, our harmonies and our vowels and our dynamics had to be so specific. We had to not only hear each other in the space, but we had to hear each other very specifically. Uh-huh. And um, there were also times when I would be running off stage, doing a quick change, but still singing. So imagine bending over, taking off your shoes and still singing. You know what I mean? It's, it, it was a wild experience. And I have to hear what's happening on stage because I'm still involved, even though I'm off stage vocally. Is that because you guys are the actors, but you're also the band? Is that what you mean? We are the actors and the band. Uh-huh. That's that's exactly what I mean. You know, so oftentimes you think, you know, as an actor, if I'm just just the actor on a stage, I go, well, I've walked off stage. I'm done. Yeah. And, and in transit, that was not the case. You walked off stage. You might still have to underscore the moment that's happening on stage. And also and also we had no visual conductor. Right. In our show. How did you do it? So our conductor, Rick Hip Flores, um, who just finished music directing The Great Comet on Broadway. Oh, may it rest in peace. He, um, he would count us in. So he would give us our starting pitches. He had a keyboard backstage, that he, and he was fed in through our in-ears as well. So in our ears was a whole other show that, that nobody could see or hear. And what's he saying? Well, I mean, it's, the, the crazy thing is he would, he would give you your pitches and go, one, two, three, and, and you would, you would, that's how we all started together. Oh, my goodness. And, but sometimes that would be happening while I'm looking across at, you know, Justin Guarini or yeah. something, my, my scene partner in the show. I would look, I'd be looking at him having a, some deep love scene saying, I love you, but in my ear I hear six, seven, <laughs> eight. So it's, it's, you're constantly kind of listening to two things at once, you know, and it's, um, it was a little bizarre at first, but once we got the, the hang of it, now I, I came to Aladdin and I said to Ken Travis, who had also sound designed, you know, in transit, I said, Ken, I'm in, I'm in Aladdin. I don't get in-ears for this show. What do you mean I don't get in-ears? You know, because the wonderful thing about those in-ear monitors is that you hear everything with crystal clarity. Wow. Not only that, but I'm able to control what I hear in my in-ear monitor. Everybody's ears are different. So I'm able to say, hey, Ken, for this number, I want um, Justin pa- exactly center, but I want the beatboxer panned a little bit right. And I want Rick to be a little bit to my left. And like, I mean, and I want the altos to be a little, and, and I could specify what I needed for every single number to a sound operator that is actually backstage just controlling my mix in my ears. This is incredible. It's, it was an insane process. And, you know, I, I wish there was still a sound design, Tony, because if there was. How is there I, not? I feel like Ken Travis would have, would have, I mean, for his work in that, would have gotten, would have gotten some kudos because it was, it was such a process. It was actually the hardest part of our process to figure out all through previews and all through tech. It's interesting because, you know, I make another podcast called Broadway Backstory where we make like a documentary style. We, we find out how a show got made and, and we make a documentary about it. And we did an episode about Fun Home and they talked about the sound design. And you never think about the sound. What is it about Circle in the Square? Like that, a very specific kind of show has to go there. But then the mechanics of making it work. I mean, how is that different from doing like a regular show like at the New Amsterdam? Well, the New Amsterdam is proscenium, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, there are certain rules about sound and, and how and how sound is projected out into the theater for the audience to hear, but also how sound is projected for us to hear backstage and all of that. You know, and it's and it's that's usually the norm. You know, most theaters in this country are proscenium. When you when you're doing a show in the round like Godspell or in three quarter like in transit, it's always tricky because you, you can't necessarily place speakers where they can be seen, you know, uh, and, and also they're intimate. It's an intimate house. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so you have to, you have to understand that, you know, sometimes depending on where the audience is sitting, I might be hearing somebody's voice, but their back might t- 
be to me. Uh-huh. And so you're, am I, you know, the, the, you have to calculate for the fact that, you know, the audience sitting there, if they're hearing something, where is that sound coming from? And are they going to, are they going to, do they have to see the person's lips moving in order to understand that that's the person speaking right now right. and all of that? So it's, it's just a trickier, it's just a trickier sound design. That is so interesting. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, are the sound designers that have worked in that room, they all know how yeah. tricky it is. It's also a cement box yeah. in there. You know, it's, it's, um, it's not, it's not the kind of house that has the acoustics. Like the New Amsterdam is an old school Ziegfeld Follies yeah, house. Sure. Do you know what I mean? So like, you know, you can have no mics at the New Amsterdam and there's a certain amount of acoustics that happens yeah. in this beautiful, beautiful theater. Well, you know, the circle in the square is you're, you're in, I call it the it's Broadway bunker. basement. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Broadway basement. It's a bunker, yeah. right? Like, if, if, you know, knock on wood that there's not a nuclear war, but like if there was one, we'd all be safe at circle in the square. Do you know what I mean? Like, but you know, it's a, it's a big cement box. And so it's hard. It, it doesn't really, it doesn't really carry sound that well so every sound designer that i've that i've worked with in that theater and i've done two two broadway shows there has always had a tricky time with it that's so amazing my so we all loved in transit my producer loved in transit and he and i have had endless conversation truly endless conversations about your character and justin greeny's character and the and the whole thing that they go through and the, the the long and the short of it is that justin greeny's character isn't out to his mom right and then and then there's a whole thing about what if he's going to come out or not and it has been the subject of like raised voice like conversations and i'm curious about that about how you guys worked on that how that storyline evolved and and sort of like how you guys did that together well you know it's interesting you know the the writers of in transit originally wrote the show as a reaction to 9-11 really when 9-11 happened you know those four writers were all part of an acapella group and when 9-11 happened, you know, the city kind of shut down and everybody kind of fi- found friends and family to be with for the day. And they found each other and they wanted to write some sort of love letter to New York City. So and, and they were just like they were like, you know, we're our acapella group. You know, we, we we can keep singing Madonna covers or, <laughs> or yes, please. Or we can like write songs about our lives and do them acapella. And so they've decided to write about their 20-something New York lives in New York and, you know, the, the, the great stuff about New York because they wanted to celebrate New York after 9-11, but also the hard times that you go through as 20-somethings, 30-somethings. And that's where that originally came from. This is based the, – the story of our characters, Trent and Stephen, are, is based on the real life of James Allen Ford, one of our writers. Wow. And so, you know, who's also from the South and is dealing with all of that, you know, of coming out and coming out in a very religious home and all of that. Well, when the show premiered, in you know 2015 2016 you know it was it was um it was now 15 16 years later you know now there was marriage equality yeah, yeah, yeah. now the, there was no more don't ask don't tell you know being out it was meant something different so even our storyline through previews evolved a lot Wow. Actually. And, you know, uh, spoiler alert. Well, not really a spoiler alert because our show was closed. <laughs> but, um, you know, when I, I remember us being in one of the late, late previews of, um, of In Transit. And, you know, in, when In Transit had its first preview, it was two days after the election. Wow. So that was the temperature of I society. I mean, if people don't remember how dark that was. It was a dark day in New York. It yeah. was like everybody walked around New York City like zombies and certainly you know me and my partner of 12 years we watched the election results you know uh, in shock right you went to like an election party and it ended up being an election funeral right and we and we the first thing i said to my partner james was i said we got to get married because whose rights are in danger Uh you know like as a person of color as a gay man as a, a son of immigrants i said this is this is this is we we have to do it we have to make sure because what if in four years we lose that right 
to do that. And then we grow old and the right has been taken away from our community and we, we can't get married and, you know, we're in the hospital and I, I'm not your next of kin. And uh, right, there's right back to that. And I said, we, we have to now think about that. I never thought that, you know, I thought progress was going in one direction. Yeah. But it, but actually with the election of, of Trump, I just wasn't sure anymore. You know, there was so much uncertainty in the air. So, so Jimmy and I made plans. We said we got to get married before the inauguration. Did you do it? So what happened was it was we had planned to do it and we both actually looked at our calendars and I was, you know, opening a new Broadway show. <laughs> he had a nine to five job and we looked at our calendars and said, well, the only Monday that we have off is the Monday after opening night. And it happened to be he happened to take that Monday off from work because it was the, it was the day after opening. Party. So we were going to go to the party and we said, we're going to go to City Hall that day. And we're not going to really tell our friends. Or our families yet, because we wanted to be able to tell our families in person, you know, when we when we were home for Christmas. And so, um, <laughs> this is like art imitating life. So what happened was in previews, they, they the the writers had pulled me and Justin aside and said, "Listen, you know, we really wanted, we really need to update what this your storyline about this gay couple to kind of match the temperature of what's happening now that the election has happened. You know, we had one ending for you guys figured out but then the election happened and i feel like everything's changed after that day and i secretly told them i said guys well i have a secret jimmy and i are actually gonna go get married on you know on december 12th the day after opening and um and we'll just throw a big party later that's what we're gonna do like we're just, we'll, but we just want to make sure that like we that in a world of uncertainty we want to hold on to something that is certain and we're certain of that did you do it we did it oh my god that is amazing and they were like can we put that in the show and we did. That's how, that's how our story ends. We don't choose how we're raised or where we live. Yes, it's easier for some, but the day does come when we choose how to spend the love we have to give. You're not in this alone. I choose you for who you are and who you'll be. I choose you Yes, I choose your family Let me be there by your side Loving you with pride Will you spend every day of your life with me And we'll be home You and me In this city of love You and me Please say I do Trent, will you marry me? Still Yes Yes, I will I do Cause you're home to me And I'll always be home to you Now, please, get up That floor is filthy Oh, oh. yes, I think I kneeled in ketchup I promise we'll bring Mama around in time In time for our wedding next month? You know what? Forget next month. We already have the license. I don't want to wait one more second to marry. Wait, what are you suggesting? That we go to City Hall right now? Four stops away. Okay. Well, let's get married. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> we are home. You and me in this city of love. You and me. Are home. 
and that was like the that was that's the contentious part that we always have. It's like the mom just needs to be ready. You know what I mean? Like that's the fight yeah, that's it's hard. You know, my and Jimmy was the one that actually. You know, Jimmy comes from a very my my husband comes from a very religious home. I come from a very conservative Chinese home. It took both of our parents a lot of time, yeah. and Jimmy actually said the wisest thing to me when he was coming out. He had said, "You know, I I knew I knew I was gay my whole life. Your parents know you a certain way." Uh-huh. For what, fifteen years, sixteen years? He came out when he was fifteen. He was like, "I need to give them yeah. uh, some time yeah. to then like figure out who this person is." Something yeah. that I've known for my entire life. I need to give have the patience, you know. And I and I do believe that unconditional love between a parent and a child works both ways. Yeah. You know, there is going there are going to be times, especially as we get older as children and our parents get older, that we have to exercise the unconditional love part yeah. and the patience part. And, you know, and pray and hope that they come around, you know. You're such a good son. I remember the first time you were on our podcast, I talked to you for like 90 minutes. I wanted all the stories of your parents and you told us all. And I've listened to it since and I'm like, God, he's such a good son. <laughs> well, I, I, I had very good parents. Yeah. So, you know, and, um, and I have good people around me. So it, that, that makes it easy to be a good son, mm-hmm. I think. But, but I, but I, um, I don't know, the older, the older, I, I had a hard time with that too, with my parents. And I just had to go, listen, I, I love you guys. I love you guys unconditionally. And, you know, this is the person I'm going to be with for the rest of my life. And, you know, I, I would love us to all be a big family. I'm going to give you as much time as you need to come to terms with that. You know, can I ask a personal question? Yeah, sure. Has it, have they come around? Oh gosh. Yes, absolutely. Like it's, you know, it's taken a long time and, you know, especially with traditional Chinese parents, they show love in very different ways. Uh You know, my, my, my dad, like the first time I knew that it was going to be okay. You know, my dad and my mom live in Brooklyn. They go to Costco (laughs) and they shop in bulk. And when they shop in bulk, you know, they still live in Brooklyn. So when they shop in bulk, they they always go whatever extra that they don't use, they bring up to Manhattan and they give to me. Right. So, you know, one day I, I get a phone call from Costco and it's my dad and he goes, Telly, there's a sale on apples. Do you, do you like apples? And I said, yeah, yeah, dad, I like apples. You should buy, buy the apples. He was like, okay, does Jimmy like apples? Which meant he was also thinking about, yeah. like, will Jimmy eat these apples? Yeah. And like, it's little things, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And I go, all right, okay. Yeah. Like, it's, it's okay. It's, you know, it's, it's little baby steps. Yeah, 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 you know? yeah. I just have two more words to say about in transit. Margot Seibert. Brilliant. (laughs) She's brilliant. You know, talk about a, talk about a, again, like, you know, it was a very ensemble show, but she really was a leading lady in that show, for sure. And her voice is just like, even in the most intricate harmonies, there's just something about her voice that stands out to me, you know? Well, there's nobody that sounds like her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's such, um, it's such a unique voice and, and you're right, but at the same time, it's, she blends so beautifully. And I think that was what was so great about In Transit too, was that you really had a cast filled with people that could all lead their own show, who have led their own show. Yeah. Do you mean, you know, Aaron Mackey and Justin Guarini and Margot yeah. and, 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 you know, it's, it's all of these people that have, that have, that have really like James Snyder, you yeah, know, talk yeah, about, yeah. A, talk about a leading man on Broadway. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, and, and they're, and they're all, I don't know, they're, they're you know that they're going to stand out in their own moment in the show. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the 11 of us blended the way that we did yeah. was, was, um, was kind of amazing. And the task of that beatbox man. Oh, gosh. I mean. We had two phenomenal yeah. beatboxers who, who were not really from the Broadway world. And I thought that was really, really cool, too. They were, they were really from the street performer, beatbox, hip-hop, acapella world. Yeah. And, um, and it, was, it was just a cool way to, like, meet other people that were in a different community and learn about that. And we all had to do a little bit of beatboxing through uh-huh. the show. We, uh, throughout the show because the beatbox we had to give the beatboxers a bit of a break when yeah. they were acting and stuff like that so so all of us had to take beatboxing 101 from those guys 
wow. from Chesney and from Heaven, you know, we had to we had to do a little beatboxing, and they and you know that that pro- that learning process was hysterical to watch. You know, ten other Broadway like <laughs> stars try to go. You know, I mean, it's amazing. It was crazy. Okay, so the last thing we have to talk about is allegiance. When he stands for what is right, what makes a man is his loyalty. When he fights, his nation's fight. What makes a man is what he makes of himself. When he's giving it all he can. For all our sakes, I'll do what it takes. I must be When you were on the podcast the first time, I, we were just talking about how like it was kind of uncertain. Like you had finished it in California, I think, but we didn't know exactly what was going to happen. You know, that's the, the that was you know talk about the learning process of a new musical. You know, when you when you try a show out of town, do you have a house to come into in right. New York? You know, it's the it's the hardest part of getting a show on Broadway is yeah. getting is getting a house. And so it, there was so much uncertainty about whether or not we were going to even get to to be on Broadway at all. Um, so, so, you know, I, I, that show, it means so much to me because I was part of its development yeah. for seven years before it got to Broadway. And the fact that we even got to Broadway, that a musical about the Japanese American internment was actually on Broadway with a cast of, you know, Asian people was, was an unbelievable feat yeah. to me. And the, you know, and yes, was the, sh- was the run shorter than I wished, of course. But I, I think that the four months that we were even on Broadway was a miracle yeah, <laughs> in yeah, itself, yeah. telling that story. Yep. And also, and also I know that we touched people mm-hmm. during that show. I know that we opened people's, we opened hearts and opened minds by doing that show. Did you guys do a lot of talkbacks and stuff? We did a ton of talkbacks actually with student groups. And there was, um, a, they actually formed a wonderful program where they were, they would bring in students all the time our our you know mezzanines were filled with students on the matinees at all times and we and we rebated those tickets so that they could afford to come so it didn't matter if they they were you know if they if those students were public school students or didn't have a lot of money we we just made it available to them and um and there were always tons of students in our audiences and we always spoke to them and and you know and and we also had a lot of people i remember like being at the stage door and and there were so many people that were in the military that were oh, that yeah. that had served that that felt like um that that wanted to thank us for telling that that part of the story and and there were you know i there were so many you know there were african americans who came up to us and said gosh that's i saw you know japanese faces on stage but that's our story too uh-huh. you know jewish audience members uh, certainly you know middle eastern and muslim americans would come up to us and say gosh we really relate to this story you know and um and it was uh, i i think it was something that that um even though you were seeing Asian faces on Broadway, you were seeing an American family and what they were going through and what made them, you know, the big question that we asked in that show was what made them not American for those years? Was it simply the color of their skin Uh and where their families were from? You know what I mean? So it, and and of course, you know, with the announcement today that DACA is about to end in six months, that the show is even more relevant now more than ever. And I'm so glad, you know, our producers actually captured the show um, yeah. when it went on in its final week on Broadway. We captured one of the last performances and Fathom Events has picked it up and done these screenings all over the country. It, it's done so well that they've done an encore screening this last February. And now they're going to do another encore screening at, in like four or 500 screens all over the country um, on Pearl Harbor Day this coming oh, December. Wow. The movie's also been translated into Japanese. Well, in, in Japanese, Japanese subtitles we're still singing in English yeah. but um, but um, it's also going to premiere in Japan 
as well. So this story that I think you know is so specific in time-wise into a certain culture of people in American history, but but I also think has universal themes that everybody can learn from. You know, is now going to be told all over the country and all over the world, and it's being preserved in this way. And you know, thank God for Fathom Events, who's going to like do it in all of these theaters for all those people that couldn't make it to see it on Broadway when it ran for four months. You know, now they have an opportunity to see it at a movie theater yeah. in their hometown. Yeah, I mean, I think that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, does it kill you that it kills me like it kills me that you couldn't go see Leah Slanga in Fun Home in the Philippines? Oh, my gosh. I wish. <laughs> I wish I could have seen that. But, you know, I'm excited that Leah is now going to be doing Once on this Island. I and, know. And, you know, because she, she – I remember her coming to see us and see me in Godspell. I remember her coming to see – I don't think she saw in transit. But um, I, I, I remember telling her what a special house that is yeah. and that it's a unique experience to perform in a theater like that. And I know that she was a huge fan of Fun Home when she saw it on Broadway, which made her really want to premiere it in the Philippines. And now she's in that house yeah. where all of those – where all of that history has happened. And it's, um, I'm, I'm excited for her. on Doing What's on this island, one of my favorite shows. I know. Well, you're amazing. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Well, and people need to come and see you at the New Amsterdam Theater as Aladdin 800 times a week. Yeah. Come, come see us in Agrabah. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a blast. You'll have fun. And come back soon. Thanks. I will, sir. Sure. Let's not let three years go by again. Absolutely not. Bye. Just a reminder to check out BroadwayCon.com where you can find tickets and information about BroadwayCon 2018. Theater People is produced by Mike Jensen and me, Patrick Hines. Mike edited this episode. Special thanks to Steve Tipton, Eric Emsch, Keith Allen Herzog, Ellen Marsh, and the staff at Oswald's. Special thanks also to our Patreon associate producers, Robbie Roselle, Cynthia Wallach, and Ty Williams. We'll be back next week. Until then, tell your friends about us. We'll see you soon. Mwah! Hey,